Welcome back to Stargazer. Today I'm going to be talking to my friend Jawan Ku, who is easily the most original, innovative, and provocative voice in modern magic. You may know her from her YouTube channel, Witches and Wine, which has become one of the most valuable resources for modern occultism. On Witches and Wine, Jawan has interviewed some of the best scholars and practitioners alive today. But she's not just a passive interviewer. Jawan has a white hot intellect and an artistic spirit which has synthesized the vast amount of occult perspectives into a unique magical philosophy that I was privileged to hear in this interview today. As a Korean American following the Western esoteric path, Jawon embodies the true liminal spirit of magic itself. And as a vocal crypto enthusiast, she is pushing the boundaries of financial sorcery well into the 21st century and beyond. And through her ability to synthesize high and low, pop and art, east and west, she is truly a postmodern alchemist par excellence. To speak with Jawan is to encounter effortless brilliance, good humor, and a truly hermetic spirit. Our talk skips lightly through the cosmos, touching on the occult power of K-pop, ancestral veneration, cultural syncretism, cryptocurrency, financial sorcery, and decentralization in the Aquarian age to come. As a former student of mine, I am truly humbled by the achievements Jawan has made as a magician and philosopher, and I was honored to spend two hours speaking with her. I have decided not to edit out a moment of our conversation, because I know you will all benefit greatly from the epic flow. So I hope you enjoy. All right, so welcome back to Stargazer, another amazing episode. Today, I'm here with my husband, Andre, who's often my co-host, and I'm super excited to talk to you today, Jean. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Like, we've been friends for a very fucking long time, so this is so (laughs) amazing that I'm on your podcast. Oh my god, that is very true. Yeah, we have been friends for a long time now, actually, and That's such a trip for me because I I still think of what I'm doing as very new, but it's actually not. I've been doing this work for a really long time. And so, Jawan, how did we meet? How did we meet? So basically, it was in another magical class. Your name kept getting mentioned. And I was like, okay, let me look into Rachel. And this is Aeolian Heart newsletter love the way that you write. It was so poetic. It was cinematic. I've described you as sort of like a cross between Lana Del Rey and Stevie Nicks. (laughs) (laughs) And I was so, so just enamored by your writing style. And I'm one of those people, I definitely see if I vibe with people based upon their writing style, the way they dress, the words they use, the technology they use, all these little, I would say little markers. And I was like, all the things that you were, they kind of checked off. Like, this is somebody I would personally vibe with. Like, I would love to like hang out with. And that's how I kind of choose like where to go. It's, it's nothing sort of like intellectual. It's more like, but I want to chill with them. Would I want to hang out with them? Mm -hmm. And then like you and then Andre, like you both would definitely, I feel like if we had never met in any other sort of magical circumstance, we'd have still like hung out. Right. Yeah, for For sure. sure. Yeah. Sure. So I was just like, yes, absolutely. And then I took your class 
and the class, um, it was just absolutely amazing. It was, there were actually two classes, I think. There was like one level, then the second level. Mm-hmm. And it really changed the way that I viewed the occult because Rachel, you were talking about natural cycles and rhythms rather than just the 10th house means this, Pisces mm-hmm. means that. There was a context to it. And I thought to myself, I think this person, this pair, they get it. They get that astrology and magic, it's part of a bigger cycle. Um, it's a way to look at certain parts of the cycle, much like when you look at economic charts, you're looking at a specific cycle. It doesn't mean it's everything, but it is an important cycle. It is an important piece of data. And mm-hmm. the way that you contextualized it was exactly what fit into the rest of what I was thinking of. And so, I mean, we were talking earlier and I was like, Rachel, I think that class, it absolutely helped shape the way that I view magic today. And I 100% focus on the class. I put in a lot of work. I did not multitask. <laughs> Usually I'm taking like five gazillion classes at once, reading 5 million books. For your yeah. class, I think I have the binder somewhere. I like took notes. I made <laughs> PowerPoints. I like did all of that because I was like, I think this information, like I can Google things like, what does, t- what does the 10th house mean? But the actual idea, the bigger idea, the macro idea behind it, it is not something that you can Google. It's something that you have to learn from a teacher. And so I just really appreciate the, the classes that you've put on, that you both have put on. Oh my God, right, thank you. that's yeah. so dope. Thank you. Um, that was Discovery, the art and soul of astrology. It was the first class that I ever put together, like um, from my own heart and soul work anyway. I've been a teacher for a long time and many different levels of education. But what I remember was that you were a fucking great student and you really stood out. You put in so much effort. I did. And you were so responsive and you were so awake and you were so alive. So it was a joy to have you in that class because we started a dialogue, you know, and it was really amazing for me as well. And of course, the difference between being a school teacher and being an adult that's teaching other adults is that you're you're on the same level you have a rapport you can actually be peers and so when I read your natal chart shortly after that class I remember being astounded at the potential that you had to do the very thing that you are doing now and I remember really being excited to be able to encourage you to just put yourself out there like actually start your channel start sharing do what it is that you were thinking about doing with no fear, have total confidence that you have what it takes. And, um, and since then, that was like back in 2016, you have done everything we talked about and much, much more. So can you just tell a little bit, can you tell my audience a little bit about what it is that you're doing online and what your journey has been like in terms of developing yourself as a, an online personality? Sure. So I want to actually do it. This might be kind of fun. From what I remember of your chart reading, and by the way, Rachel gives amazing, constructive, practical readings. Like I had many readings that I always recommend you, Rachel, because the way that you interpreted my chart, because I think, you know, astrologers can look at the same chart and interpret it different ways. The way that you interpreted my chart, I totally grokked it. I totally understood like what you were saying. Mm -hmm. I was really worried about these like really big oppositions in my chart. I have like basically Mars opposing Saturn. I have my sun opposing my moon. I was really worried. I was fucking worried about the Mars opposing Saturn. Like I was actually really bummed out when I read about it, like in the class. And I was just like, fuck, what does this mean? Cause mm-hmm. Mars and Saturn, they, they're the malefics too. And yeah. I was like, oh fuck, my life is just going to go down into a shithole, you know? 
and you framed it. And I remember, this is like burned into my brain. And this is actually one of the things that helped me gain some bravery to go out and do the thing that I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. The way that you framed it was amazing. So my Saturn is in Virgo, my Mars is in Pisces and everybody talks shit about Mars and Pisces anyways. Mm-hmm. And you were like, you basically told me, and you know, Rachel doesn't really curse a lot, but you basically told me, fuck what everybody else thinks. Fuck that <laughs> noise. Think about it instead as your Mars in Pisces is a wannabe prima ballerina, athletic, beautiful, artistic. Mm-hmm. But to get to prima ballerina level, you need a good coach. Mm-hmm. Your Saturn in Virgo is like that really nasty, but really, really like you need that coach, the Bolshoi ballet, Russian, like old school, like she'll smack you on the head if you don't do it. (laughs) But like deep down, it's like a lot of love. Mm -hmm. And it's like, they need each other. You cannot have this prima ballerina without that Bolshoi ballet master, basically. Yeah. And when I heard my opposition being framed in that way, I was like, I can do this. I can be the person who's the prima ballerina and the basically Bolshoi coach working together. It's the tension that needs to happen. And Mm -hmm. so what I did was I then started a YouTube channel. I had a YouTube channel, but it was like me and my friend eating a lot of food. It's a mukbang. (laughs) 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 We were just eating a lot of food. I was living in Korea at the time. We met when I was living in Korea. Yeah. And then it slowly morphed into a channel where I talked to, I think some of the best occult educators, writers in the English speaking, mainly Western occultism world. You were a guest Mm -hmm. many times in the beginning, which was amazing. Um, And somehow, somehow, and trust me, it was, it was just, I can't believe that I did it. And if I knew the work that it takes now, I would have never started it. I'd be like, no way. (laughs) I always say the same thing. (laughs) Right. Right. It's like you go in and actually being new and being bright eyed and bushy tailed is a huge, huge asset because you just don't know. So I went and did it. And since then, my YouTube channel, it has become, I would say, the cornerstone of what I consider to be the first part of what I hope will help people learn more about the occult. I'm the person who goes on and asks these like really amazing thinkers. I'm just like, but why? You know, like, wait a second, how does this relate to K-pop? You know, like I ask questions like that. Yeah. Um, I I basically play the dumb blonde because I feel as though a lot of people, they're afraid to ask questions like this, like really practical questions. Yes. And I'm not part of the occult community per se. So I don't feel as weird asking it. Like I feel much more comfortable. Yeah. And then from that, I went on TikTok and then TikTok, it was all about like good timing and the algorithm. And then it just exploded from there. And so now it's like, I do the TikTok, I do the YouTube. The Instagram is is coming along, it's coming along. Um, And then I do a podcast and now I have like a newsletter, but it's not about magic. It's about uh, the blockchain and crypto space. So there's that and everything is just like building on top of each other. And I know people are going to be like, what? Blockchain, crypto? That has nothing to do with magic, but it has everything to do with magic because my views of magic have been morphing these past couple of years. But again, I would... I know that it's going to be like, I know I said this before, but Rachel, like the way that you talked about astrology, it has been so formative in the way that I think about everything else and how it relates together. Like all these like Legos, like snapping in together. Oh my God. I'm so happy to hear that. I really, I'm, I'm honored. That's why I wanted to teach, you know, and I'm actually really interested in hearing about, first of all, let me just say, uh, Witches and Wine was the name of your YouTube channel, and it is a great resource 
for anyone that wants to get hip to what's going on in the occult, you did interview so many amazing authors and amazing thinkers. And I loved the dynamic of your interview style. Yeah, you did kind of play the dumb blonde, but not to like, not to a belligerent degree, but what you did was you just allowed a true dialogue to take place. And it's good for one party in the dialogue to actually play the naive, to play the fool, to play someone who doesn't know, because that's how you get the best questions. That's how you really probe. You know, when you start off a dialogue as a know-it-all, it's not a very good conversation. So I just loved the way that you interviewed, because not only did you make it accessible for beginners um beginner's mind is the best place to stay as a a genuine seeker or a genuine learner so i think that it's brilliant actually totally genius to be the one that's willing to ask really basic simple questions and to approach every interview with that beginner's mind you know so it's not dumb. It's actually brilliant. But I do get what you're saying. And I love that you do that because it's it's really rad to actually make things relatable and accessible for everyone. I think that's important. So, yeah, Witches and Wine is something everyone needs to check out. Great resource um, and lots of excellent interviews with really important people in the occult. But I'm actually before we dive into what you're working on now, um, I'm interested in. So you were in Korea, but you are also Korean now, you know culturally, ethnically, you are Korean. So how is it that you came to like become interested in Western occultism? And I know it's not exclusively Western, but you did like dive in so deep into Western occultism. So I'm really interested in this syncretism between where you come from and how you have like married the two worlds not only being korean and living in america and then going to korea like how have you experienced this marriage of the two worlds in your life i really appreciate that question rachel um i really think that anybody who comes from any sort of liminal space whether it's their sexual identity, uh, their race, uh, their religion, their history, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Whenever they come from a space where they're one foot in sea and one foot in shores, you know, like Shakespeare said, mm-hmm. um, that actually makes you, I think, a natural candidate for any sort of magic. Because magic is what? Magic is liminal. Yeah. Magic is, are you asleep or are you awake? We don't fucking know. Is it sunrise or sunset? Who the fuck knows? Um, so <laughs> to me, that is magic. And so it kind of doesn't matter what magical tradition you go into if you're from any sort of liminal space. I think it's just that, do you go into any sort of magical thinking? And for me, because I am a Korean American, it was easy to find resources in English that were in the Western occult vein. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if there had been more resources in the more Eastern occult vein, I'm sure I would have sought that out as well. Mm-hmm. So it was more like laziness. It was more like, well, you know, let's just go with what's right in front of me that I can order off Amazon. That's in English. <laughs> I love it. So I think that's what it really comes down to. Guys, magic is not some sort of like, oh, thing. It's actually more of like, much like computer programmers, I think a lot of occultism is like born out of, I want to get this done with the least amount of effort possible because mm-hmm. if I don't, something bad might happen. And so <laughs> I think that sort of utility is what drives a lot of my magic, at least. Mm-hmm. It drives a lot of programmers as well. Mm-hmm. And so I think 
that's how I got into it. But for me, my liminality, and I think the liminality of millions of people is that they are from, they're bicultural and the cultures, they don't mesh well in that, you know, it's not like you're German French, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. not like that. It's like, you're from the East and you're from the West. Yeah. And the Korean economy, I think anybody who's into K-pop, who's into anything pop culture today, they may not realize this, but Korea has been on a crazy ride for the past 30 years. Mm-hmm. When I was born versus now, like when I was born, my mom had to go on the black market in Seoul, Korea to get like baby formula for me. Wow. That's how Korea was. It was a military dictatorship. Yeah. And in fact, until around 1980, I've written all these pop dust articles about like K-pop because like that's my other passion, K-pop. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> until 1988, Korea was a military dictatorship. There was no K-pop. Like you look and it's sort of like, it's like a talent show gone to hell. You know, you're just like, oh, that was music. <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe. Cheesy ballads, people trying to do like dance routines, but it's like so uncoordinated. It's kind of cute though, you know? Mm-hmm. And then suddenly in 92, like this group comes out of nowhere called Soteji, well, Aido, which means like Soteji and the kids. Mm-hmm. And they're like totally taking, I guess like Western, especially like um, what's it called? Freestyle and sort of like that 90s, like, like Bill Bib DeVoe sort of like style. Mm-hmm. And they're like turning it into like Korean rap and they can dance because they're from this like area of Itaewon, Seoul, which is like where the American military base was. So all the soldiers, you know, they were hanging around there. They were like creating like this like subculture. And back then it was not cool, right? The Korean adults were like, you are going to go to a club filled with American GIs. No way. That's like the worst. <laughs> but they were just like, fuck you. I don't like school. They went, they like became like the first wave of K-pop stars. Mm-hmm. And then what a generation later, K-pop, it dominates the world. And mm-hmm. for me being culturally, not only Asian, but Korean mm-hmm. and being part of a culture where literally I can go anywhere in Asia and be fetishized because I'm Korean. Like when I go to Southeast Asia, as soon as people find out that I'm Korean and they kind of guess because I like look very prototypically Korean, as soon as they find out, they instantly speak Korean to me and sometimes better Korean than me. Um, and then I'm just like, well, that's, this is nuts. But this just shows that wherever I go, Korean culture has become sort of like the de facto culture of like young plugged in like fandom thinking sort of people all over the world. Russians, Middle Eastern people, South Americans, Mm -hmm. definitely Southeast Asia, Americans, Canadians. Uh, Andre, you mentioned how like there was like a time when like you were like trying to get through some traffic jam and it's because BTS was having a concert. Yeah, yeah. It was when we were when we were um, when we were working together uh, during one of my uh, my many failed launches of my coaching career. um, (laughs) It's all right. uh, it was like the day that we like signed a contract. I went, I was driving to um, the market in Pasadena past the Rose Bowl. And I have never seen the Rose Bowl that jammed um, with, um, with, with traffic before. And like, and it was for a BTS concert mm-hmm. and there's just like girls like what, I mean, and the, the, the Rose Bowl itself is like a it's like a thing locally where people will like they'll jog uh they'll they'll jog around uh, this the 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 perimeter um but I'm like these aren't joggers and it's like they have all this <laughs> gear and they have you know and I'm like what and they're walking miles like miles to get there you know and, and it was insane right. so yeah I was like I it was like it was just one of those like really good synchronicities to let you know that you're on a really good track with uh with someone you know Mm -hmm. 
I mean, and the thing is, they don't do anything in English, right? Why is it that millions of people who don't speak Korean, Korea is one of the smaller countries in the world. How come millions of people who don't speak Korean, millions of Americans, they got Justin Bieber, they got Taylor Swift. Why are they choosing instead to go with a bunch of Korean guys who don't even speak their language? And this is when I realized that there is something very occult, literally occult, that the entire nation of Korea is doing. And then when it comes to other things that the entire nation of China is doing, basically the entire Asian region is doing, because what is the occult really? Like, this is one thing that I learned from Jack Rail. Back in the day, back in Hellenistic Greece, you went to your local mage because you were a slave who was going to get like whipped a hundred times the next day. And you're like, well, I can't go to the police because I think it's unfair. I need some outside help. You were a woman where your husband was going to leave you and your 12 kids because he found some like younger, hotter, cuter person, whatever, you know, you were desperate. There were not a lot of like places where you could fall into a safety net back then. Yeah. So that's what the occult is. It's the back door when you don't have access to the front door. Mm -hmm. This is what Asia has done, especially East Asia, because East Asia was in a position to do it. They're like, well, we could try to compete with America militarily. We're going to get completely squashed. We can try to compete with Europe, you know, culturally. Um, But then again, we don't speak French. We don't speak English. We don't speak all these things. So what are we going to do? We're going to speak in a language of symbolisms. We're going to speak in a language that's universal, that's international. And we're going to work together in a backdoor way to try to gain soft power. That's what the occult is. It's not hard power. It's not laws. Mm -hmm. It's not politicians like doing their thing. It's soft power. And so I feel as though Asia, if you really study Asia, like going back to Rachel, what you talked about astrology being natural laws. Mm -hmm. When you study Asia and the natural laws of how they got to where they are today, they're about to overtake America and Europe as like dominant economic cultural power in the next 10 to 20 years, that's going to happen. It's going to be a rude shock for those who have been grown up in a world where the West dominated. And the way they did it was through occult measures. Like they took a, a, a page out of the occult handbook of the Hellenistic person who's trying to gain some sort of leverage in life. They took a a page out of that handbook and they were able to do it. And I was like, you know what? If anybody wants to be a success in life today, they really need to study the occult the way that they study history, because you learn so much about how to navigate in this world of blockchain, of internet, cybersecurity, of like a changing, the fourth industrial revolution. You can better navigate this crazy world, COVID-19 lockdowns. You can best navigate it when you learn things from the occult, including astrology. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. That was a trip. I would say that's one of the most original cultural analyses that I've ever heard. So thank you. That was eye-opening. I actually never, ever would have thought of that on my own. That was incredible. Um, I just, I loved how you began with the liminal space, but I also, I, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, we have like Andre acknowledged he's seen the power of Korean culture firsthand. And what's interesting is that I have, um, I've always known Koreans. There's a lot of Koreans where I live. Um, There's a huge population of Koreans in Los Angeles, of course. And then specifically like a few miles up the road, there's a town called La Crescenta and there's a lot of Koreans in La Crescenta. So I've always had Koreans around me and 
always really appreciated everything they bring to the table. Just what they bring to this country has always been so delightful to me. And um, one thing I really, really miss the most, and this is just a personal anecdote, but um, one thing we lost during COVID was the Korean spa, which was kind of the center of my life. <laughs> like, I'm not kidding. Like, I need it. <laughs> I don't. Dude, it was amazing. It was like, it was like 15 bucks and you just get to hang out there all day. I just hope, know? I do hope that um, many aspects of Korean culture take over ours because we really need uh, that kind of, that kind of healthcare and that kind of community and that kind of like experience. You know, for me, I just, I've always known Korean people, but I learned so much about Korean people in a deeper way just by hanging out at the Korean spa because it was an all day thing. You can just go and hang out and everybody goes and brings their family and they sit around doing all kinds of things, working, watching TV, reading the paper, eating. And it was just a complete and totally like novel, but joyful thing for me. And I was just like, this is the center of my life now we would go a couple times a week and it was also affordable and that was the other thing i couldn't believe i'm like this is just so decent what a decent amazing thing to do for your family for your community and the other thing is and i have to say this truly honestly not everybody that went was korean it mostly was not everybody that went was korean there's a lot of other people around here obviously like there's a lot of armenians in this area as well and of course like random people of all races are here but they never had any problem with anyone coming in. They were very welcoming and always cool. And I just appreciated that so much. So that is just one window into my experience with Korean Americans. And um, I am really excited that you feel that your home country is rising and is actually using these occult means to do so. I agree with you completely. And as far as K-pop, I actually don't know that much about it, but I really enjoyed the history lesson. So thank you. <laughs> like, yeah. Again, I find it fascinating just as someone who studied cultural anthropology. You know, my interest in magic comes from that interest in how folk, folk magic and folk customs are born. And it's always through these organic syncretisms that something really fresh and really powerful is born. And so that story about how like the first great K-pop band that was formed actually was born out of this rebellion against the tradition, doing something new, getting some fresh energy from the GIs and actually bursting forth with something new. I love when things like that happen. That is how all like great culture is born. And at the time it seems like really antithetical to what one should do but it's always how like the fresh energy is born so it's what kind of, it's like it's it is like the alexandrian or like hellenistic absolutely model, right? is like, you know it's 100%. just it's just yeah bring you know just it's like i mean it's it's the the idea of like dj culture has been around since alexandria yeah. just like you know like check out this badass mix i made yeah you know <laughs> And, you know, it's also, it is like, it's subtle as well. And that's the other thing about occultism is that it's subtle energies and it takes subtlety and nuance to pick up on it. It's nothing you can force. It's that it factor, you know, there has to be that, that je ne sais quoi, that it factor, that very subtle flow, that subtle power. And if it's not there, if you try to force syncretism, then it turns into, it's a disaster. 
But when oh something- my god, Rachel, I this just I'm so sorry to cut you off, but no, something just like popped into my mind. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> which is okay, so Korea and much of East Asia, it's a mix of like old and new, yeah. especially in a place like Korea, because like after the Korean War, Korea was you have to understand that Korea, basically Japan came in. Like in the early 1900s and was like, we're going to take over this country right now. Hi. And Koreans were like, who the fuck are you? (laughs) Right. And Koreans try to rebel. But the Japanese, because America came in and forced Japan, like literally forced Japan, like, you know, basically like put their cannons on Japan and said, you are going to trade with us. And Japan was like, "Okay, I guess we're trading with you. This happened like in the late 1800s. And it was the Meiji Restoration where like the emperor was just like, I guess we need to join the list or whatever. So Japan was sort of ahead of all these other Eastern nations in terms of like military and economic might, because they were more integrated into the Western economy at that point. Um, So Japan came in, took over Korea. Koreans hated this shit. Um, We still have horrible bad blood with Japan right now. Like right now, like Mm -hmm. one of the biggest ways you can piss off a Korean person is by basically like trying to downplay like Japan's role in the horrible things they did. Like sometimes when people start to like be a little bit too like neutral about what Japan did, I can get angry. Right. So it's, it's like a really messy history. Koreans throughout history, because they're like stuck between China and Japan and Korea is like this tiny country in between. They've just constantly been shit on by China and Japan. And so there's this concept called Han. Han is a a very uniquely Korean thing. And in Asia, it's kind of well known that Koreans, it's a stereotype that Koreans, if we want to use stereotypes, are kind of like the Italians of the East Asians, Mm -hmm. passionate, or maybe even the Irish, you know, they're passionate, artistic, easy to anger, easy to tears, uh, holds a grudge, things Mm -hmm. like that. And Han basically translates into a type of hatred. Mm. So it's this like, and I wrote about it, it's sort of like the I hate you, but I want to fuck you feeling, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's this like super intense feeling. And when people think of East Asians, they think, oh, you know, sort of like that stoic, like Japanese person just being like, hi, we're like, you know, yeah, like, no, mm-hmm. Koreans culturally were never known that way, um, even amongst Asians. And actually Koreans were considered like they were looked down upon for being so emotive. And that Han is considered this ancestral, basically centuries of being shit on the ancestral trauma. That's what Han really is. It's ancestral trauma. And in the occult, we talk about ancestral trauma. We talk about the ancestors. Koreans today, there's two holidays, federally mandated holidays in Korea, Seollal and Chuseok, basically like New Year's and like Korean Thanksgiving, where the entire country shuts down and millions of people are doing ancestor veneration, putting the names of their ancestors in Chinese characters, laying out food and oftentimes bowing. Okay, this is from Confucian times. They're doing ancestral rites. Like Westerners are just like, this is so exotic to do ancestral rites and have like a glass of water out for your ancestors. And I'm like, "Um, Koreans today, like it's very possible that on Chu a member from BTS is with his family bowing in front of an ancestral, you know, like table of food mm-hmm. and pictures and stuff. And again, the country shuts down. And this is like a very modern country where you don't even have to open the door to get into a convenience store. The door opens for you. That's yeah. how futuristic Korea is. So this Han, this ancestral hatred, this ancestral trauma, it's considered literally to be coursing in our blood. So like, not only that, there's another Korean word called chong. Chong is attachment. And it's also supposed to be this thing that's coursing in our blood where it's sort of like, 
Thor and Loki have Chong. They hate each other, but they're attached. Mm-hmm. It can be love. It can be hatred. So Korea has this very, Koreans have this very nuanced relationship with like love and hate and with what it means to have trauma that just comes from like centuries of being shit on. And it's sort of like, why can't I, you know, it's sort of like Brokeback Mountain. I can't quit you. You know, it's sort of like that. So it's, it's that entire thing that's considered to be part of our ancestral package. Mm-hmm. And that has been something that Koreans have through savvy and through the ability, I think a natural occult mind have been able to translate into K-pop. People even say the reason why K-pop is so popular is because, and the reason why like uh, Japanese pop or Chinese pop can't do the same thing Mm -hmm. is because Koreans have that it factor, the one that you're talking about, Rachel, the je ne sais quoi, which is hatred, which is the, I hate you, but I want to fuck you feeling that comes from the ancestral trauma, the years and centuries of Japan. So because of that, um, that sort of way to transmute and alchemize that into dominating culturally in Asia and perhaps eventually in the world, that is because of this alchemy. And I'm just like, wait a second. I know that Koreans weren't like, mm, this is alchemy. Let's think of a formula. Mm-hmm. They, there was a thought behind it and there was a subtle hand. There was an invisible hand, I'm sure, guiding all of this. Mm-hmm. And that invisible hand had to do with economic reasons. It had to do with cultural reasons. It had to do with so many other things. But to me, this is what the occult is. The occult is not cosplaying, you know, and like just like, like trying to reconstruct a time from 5,000 years ago. The occult is a contextual thing where you take modern society plus your ancestral baggage plus all this, and then you mishmash it all together, put it in a liminal space that is beyond language of man, you know, that is um, symbolic, that is, you know, one of the things that you taught, Rachel, was also like looking through the cycles of like when things peak and when things kind of like fall down Mm -hmm. and to learn how to ride the wave, to ride the surf. So it is that timing. People who have that je ne sais quoi, they have it because they can intuitively understand timing. Mm-hmm. And so they just know it. They don't need to look at charts per se. They kind of like understand the timing and timing is so important to it all. Mm-hmm. Timing is very graceful. And so like having the combination of all that together, that is so important. And a lot of people, they just study the charts. They only do the intellectual part. They don't understand the je ne sais quoi. They mm-hmm. don't understand the occult. Mm-hmm. And that's the missing piece. And I'm just like, dude, this is what you also need to study, study the occult, because that's when you bring in that grace. That's when you bring in that sort of wave. That's when you bring that in. And that's the missing piece for so many people today who are so materialist and who are so anti-occult. I'm just like, you want to succeed in life today, you have no choice but to bring in the occult. And so I was just like, that's what Korea did. And so if we like, like an engineer, we like reverse engineer what Korea did, what a lot of East, what China's doing right now, I think we can actually see if you want, we want to talk about blueprints, we can see a blueprint of the occult going forward. And that's what I've done, basically. I just basically reverse engineered, started to reverse engineer and started to look into what East Asia is doing and being like, this is a cult, this is this, this is that. And that's the reason why my magic today has radically changed. Oh my God. Well, let's hear a little bit about that, actually, because that's actually what Andre and I want to learn from you. Yeah. Um, Mercury you, just entered Gemini. Mercury just it's, entered Gemini. It's time for it's 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 like it's the airy season is coming, the uh, the free flow of information is is upon us, and um, and you said something really interesting before, which I I get what you're saying, but I want to hear your perspective. Um, you said that you know you're into blockchain and crypto now, 
which was a natural, it was a natural interest that branched off of your exploration of the occult. And you mentioned that most people don't see the relationship, but you do. And I do as well. But can you explain what you meant by that? Sure. So there are people in the occult who do a lot of energy work, I would say chaos magic, mm-hmm. you know, that was very much based upon, okay, we're working with spirits, but can we pare it down to what's the essential parts, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have people who are like new age, and, I, and I, people in the occult love to shit on new age people, but I'm just like, eh, different vocabulary, a lot of the things they do are similar-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's just like straight up like hardcore spirit workers. So there's many different veins of the occult, and I don't want to just like lump them all together. Mm-hmm. But what we're all working with, no matter what, is energy. You know, these spirits, they come to us because they're, they are a type of energy, subtle energy. We are working with law of attraction because it's energy. Um, and no matter what sort of magic we're doing, we're doing energy. Well, for me, this makes perfect sense that what is the energy that's pervading modern society right now? It's electrical energy. It's energy that's powering basically the cloud. Um, cloud, I mean by cloud computing, Mm-hmm. And also next generation blockchain. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, they're so, I guess, scared of blockchain because it sounds a little bit like not cool. It's like block and a chain mm-hmm. and they don't understand what it really is. And I'm just like, guys, it's lit- like cloud sounds like super like fluffy and cute. Blockchain, not so much. I'm just like, guys, well, cloud is not as cute as it, you think it is. And blockchain isn't as scary as it is. <laughs> so you know, it's just marketing. it's just literally a bunch of computers no matter what both of these things google okay i think that google has like this humongous server farm like in kansas or something like i forget somewhere in like america by a dam okay like literally there's a dam and it has cheap hydroelectric power and that's the reason why google was like we're going there they have a humongous warehouse and if you walked into the warehouse you're going to see something out of fucking Terminator 3, right? It's just going to be tons of these machines, these computers without the cute casing on the outside, lined up, tons of wires, um, air conditioning, like something going on because these computers, they generate a lot of heat. And you know what those computers, those individual computers on shelves, what they're literally doing is they are storing every single YouTube video, every single like whatever, like every single like porn site, whatever, Mm -hmm. is everything that Google indexes all the businesses that use like Amazon, like whatever it is, like Amazon has their own like warehouse and stuff. It's just literally computers that are storing this information. It's like not really that crazy when you think about it. Cause when you go to a website, you literally need to go to some computer that has a copy of that information. That's web 1.0 where remember, like if you're old enough, you'll remember going to like some sort of GeoCity site. And it was like some like cheesy, but really like rad when you think about it, site where it was just almost like a page from a book, but it had a flashing like picture or something like that, right? It was like cool because of that. Yeah. But you couldn't really- playing in the background. Right, right. It was like, now it's like super cool. Now it's like super cool, but back then, and back then it was super cool too. We were just like, holy shit. Like now you can like look and find information about stuff. You know, the address, the web address was literally like you going up to somebody's house, opening it and somebody being like, this is the information. And you being like, cool, man. And then somebody was just like, wait a second, the web can be responsive too. You can actually write emails. You can like send messages. And then web 2.0 is like, you can actually start to interact. Like you can put in a query and then the web will be like, not only am I going to give you just the static information, I'll give you information that you're looking for, or 
I will change the sort of information. Web 2.0 was a lot of like retail stores because the retail store was like, what do you want? What do you need? Okay, just put it in the search box and we'll give it to you. Or it was like, and all these new languages, computer languages came up and these computer languages are like computer software programs. It's like Microsoft Word that's being hosted on like a big godhead, on like like some like computer that's just being like, okay, you don't have to install like JavaScript on your computer, right? Like you don't have to, like, because mm-hmm. some websites are going to have that language and then it's just going to like interact with you. And I've done very little coding in my life, but I remember the first time that I put in code into the terminal on my Mac and I put in hello and the computer said back to me, hello. And I was like, oh my God, this is like literally the most magical thing I've ever experienced in my fucking life. Yeah. And it was kind of like that. It's like, we take for granted that computers, that websites are responsive, but it didn't start out that way, you know? It didn't start out like this. And yet that's what happened. It evolved. And then we got like retail. And now Web 3.0 or Web 3 is coming up. And Web 3 is going to have a lot to do with going back to the philosophy of Web 1, which is, if you think about it, Web 2 that we're in right now, it's dominated by like maybe 10 companies, Google, Facebook, Twitter whatever it is. Like we think the web is free. It's not. The reason why there's so many documentaries and stuff coming out right now about social media is destroying your mind is because basically instead of saying social media is destroying your mind, I think what they really meant to say, but they don't really know it because they don't understand decentralization Mm -hmm. is that when you have only 10 companies or so deciding what you can see and what you can say and what's allowed, then you live in a bubble. But imagine if there were a thousand companies, a million independent companies, if it was decentralized, it wasn't centralized into 10, but decentralized into an infinity. Mm-hmm. That is what Web3 is trying to go towards. And a huge part of it is this new technology called blockchain. And blockchain was created back in 2000, whatever, 8, 2010. If we were alive back then, it was a shitty time. So what happened economically was more or less there was an economic bubble. And then a lot of people, they couldn't afford to buy houses, but you know, like they were getting loans anyways. And they were like, oh my God, I can, I only make like $30,000 a year, but I got a loan for like $500,000. I can buy a huge house. No worries. It's a bubble economy. Sooner or later, I'll get a better job and I'll be able to pay the mortgage in the future. Not a problem. And here's a, here's where the real problem was. People were just like, oh, you know, these are high risk people, but we're going to grade them as being like only like B level when it comes to risk. And the banks who are huge, they don't have time to look through everything. They were just like, cool, we'll buy all these like loans and stuff, mortgages. And of course, shit happened, you know, subprime like mortgage crisis, everything. The economy went down, the banks, like they just had all these bad loans and money's a scam, by the way, Um, but that's a total aside. (laughs) And then- what happened was that the economy just like completely crumbled. And then the governments were just like, oh shit, if all these banks go down, our government is gonna have less power and we can't let that happen. And plus I was like Princeton roommates with the guy who like runs like this bank, you know, he's like my boy, mm-hmm. quite literally my boy. And he's turning to me and he's just like, well, money's fake anyways. Literally guys, money is something that's written in a ledger by the accounting firms, the bank, the Fed. The Fed, the Federal Reserve is not a part of the government. It is a independent private bank with stockbrokers or stockholders, okay? Like, I don't think people, right? Yeah, go ahead, Rachel. No, go ahead. I'm listening. I was just saying true. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I didn't realize this until recently. And I was just like, what the fuck? 
They're literally deciding how much money we're going to print and not print. They literally are deciding. And this is not the federal government. They're called the Fed, but they're not federal, guys. They're talk private. About forces, seriously, like talk about mm-hmm. like an occult mind trick on on yeah. on the entire like on the global population, essentially. Just you to like, make a quick commercial. <laughs> um, my class cash flow about Mercury and Gemini actually teaches that m- money is nothing but a magic trick. It's an illusion. Uh, and that's that's another part of the occult that's important. Like it can be used to trick the mind or hypnotize people. But also dehypnotize, you know. Well, you can condition people or you can decondition. And I love what you're talking about. You know, decentralization is a theme that Andre and I have been talking about for quite some time from an astrological point of view the Aquarian era that we've entered. I'm not going to call it the Aquarian age necessarily, because that's a big nerd debate that I don't want to be a part of, but Saturn's in Aquarius. Pluto's going to be entering Aquarius in 2024. And we just had the, the great conjunction in Aquarius. We had the great conjunction in Aquarius. And here we go. Like, what is Aquarius all about? What are the Aquarian themes that we're going to be confronting? It is actually leaving behind the city for the wilderness, entering into the journey of seeking autonomy, freedom, the room to experiment, actually freeing one's mind of the conditioning that we have all suffered from, which comes from centralized authority, of course. And this has been a unique time in human history. The impulse to condition the minds of a population has always been there. That's human. There have always been evil empires, cruel kings, tyrants. There have always been dogmas. But never before in human history has there been such a centralized authority with so much ability to magnify their message and and control everyone with it. And we have seen that unfolding like never before in the last year. There's just like one message. There's one message. There's one story. Everyone on the globe is supposed to live by. Um, and everybody's ruled by money, which isn't even real. It's hilarious. So I'm so ready. <laughs> no, I, 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 and I like what you were saying uh, just a minute ago about like how these social media documentaries are like, you know, it's, it's so like, tech narcissists that they're trying to act like what they're doing is something new mm-hmm. but like when i was watching um that one that was big on netflix last year it, i was like you know it, it like you said it, it's it's really just the age-old story of like the 10 companies that run everything and it, it's like it's just it's like rehashing like the neo what was her name naomi klein like no logo thing from from like the late 90s of just like these are the six corporations that run the news and um, and also like um, the the methods were not did not seem that advanced. What it seemed advanced was the the rate, the frequency, the rate at which they could disseminate this propaganda. The, the propaganda. But if you watch like a documentary like Century of the Self about Edward Bernays, these were techniques that were developed in you know in the in in the early twentieth century. You mm-hmm. know, um, so like the real like you said the real new thing. This is really just the, mo- the, the, bl- this is really just like the, 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 um, it's, it's like the, 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 the cyst is about to pop, 
you know, you know, it's like, it really is like, it's at that point where the boil is about to burst. Um, I'm sorry, I'm using such gross metaphors, but that's kind of how it, it feels, you know, uh, but it like, and, and we really are the, on the verge of like this new thing, what you're talking about with uh, blockchain and, and um, the, the crypto market. I love what you said, like both of you, like what you guys said. I think one of the things that happened like after 2008 was everybody was just like, and this is like, you know, Occupy Wall Street too, right? Where everybody was like, wait a second. So they get a bailout, but we don't. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was working like basically on Wall Street <laughs> at that point, you know, not like doing finance, but like and the, the back end of it, uh, like the computer side of it. And I was just watching these like young people. I, if you look at my Instagram, like back then, you'll literally see like me, like I went to like that area and I would take photos and it's like documented on my Instagram, like back in the day. And so I was just like, okay, there's something that's going on. Something's changing. And I think it's because of the internet, people were able to share information and share grudges and things like that. And then there was this one dude, this is not his real name, but his name is Satoshi Nakamoto. I used to call him Satoshi Nakamura because I know somebody named Yuki Nakamura, but his name is Satoshi Nakamoto. That's not his name. Um, and nobody knows who he is. People suspect that he may be one of the main people, and more she, from this movement from the 1980s called cypher punks. These were cryptologists and these were like hackers who were really big about decentralization. So if you guys have seen that kind of like cool Angelina Jolie movie, like hackers, like from remember yeah it's like it's like kind of like that but like think 80s right yeah and so people think maybe satoshi nakamoto is one of them who knows and um so he basically or she i'm just going to use he because people are pretty sure you know like i'm pretty sure too because the space unfortunately is dominated by dudes um i'm gonna just say he like he basically created this new technology called blockchain and this new way of like basically having all these computers, instead of having Google have a server farm, I mentioned server farms, like buy that dam in Kansas or whatever, um, just rows of computers, instead of having Google own all that and therefore owning the warehouse and owning that information, mm -hmm. how about we have somebody in Argentina, somebody in China, somebody in Iceland, somebody in South Korea, somebody in America, somebody, you know? Mm -hmm. All the server farms are now decentralized. All the individual nodes are decentralized. And now what you need is you need to create a software program that basically makes it so whenever something is done on you know, the blockchain, some sort of transaction happens, that all of these computers that are all over the world, they can agree. Because what if some asshole decides, oh, I'm just going to um, make a transaction here saying that I have a million Bitcoin just randomly, I'm going to make it up the way that we make up money, that the Fed just makes up money out of thin air. Yeah. Well, maybe that one person wants like a million Bitcoin, but there's going to be 99,000 other, who knows how many, like, I forget how many other nodes there are on the Bitcoin network, or just going to be like, yeah, that's not going to happen because they all have their own interests. They all have their own sort of like, you know, whatever. And so majority rules. And so the software program was created a very, I would say at the time it was revolutionary. Now we kind of see it as clunky, but at the time it was revolutionary where it was just like the majority has to decide this is the real transaction. And not only that, that's the, that's the block, the block of transactions. And then when you have like a whole bunch of other transactions that you're going to put in a new block, you're going to put a hash. You're going to say it's connected to this block. It's chained to the previous block. 
And therefore it's like done. It's immutable. Nobody can change this shit. Like once it's like put in the blockchain, like, and by now there's like what, like millions of blocks of transactions chained together. If you want to be like, oh, I want to get a million Bitcoin. It's like, dude, how did that happen? Because if we look back at all these chains of blocks, there's no logic. There was no sequence to show that you would have had that millions of Bitcoin because we know how many Bitcoins there are. There's like 21 million ever that are going to be minted. Mm-hmm. So because of that, that's why it's called blockchain. It's blocks of transactions chained together. And there's little hashes saying that this is what happened previously. And you can go back a million, because whatever, you can go back. You can literally doop, go back and be like, this chain says this, boop, go back. This chain says that. Mm-hmm. That's the reason why the technology the, the security around the information is so intense. Nobody can, well, not nobody, but it'd be super hard and super expensive to hack it. Mm-hmm. Satoshi Nakamoto, he created that, um, that the sort of way to do it. And he did it because he was like, fuck the banks, fuck the centralized thing. Let's try to create more money. And I think he came from the school of Austrian economics, which is just a fancy way of saying that he believes and people who believe in that economic model, and I'm one of those people, we believe that money is what is scarce when everybody can trade something because it's like available to everyone, right? Like, I don't know, like fucking like dust, okay? Dust is everywhere. There's nothing special about it. It's not scarce. So if you're gonna transact using dust, each dust is gonna be worth like, if we use it in American terms, like American dollar terms, like 0.0001 cent because everybody has dust. But something like gold, Well, the thing is gold, there's only an X amount of it on earth, unless another like meteorite comes in and crashes into, I don't know if it's a meteorite or asteroid, if it crashes into earth and creates more gold, but there's only an X amount of gold, it's rare. Mm -hmm. So there's only a a certain amount of it. It's scarce. And because it's scarce, people are just like, holy shit, it's rare. So each one is going to be worth a certain amount. This is the reason why that, that diamond company, the beers or whatever, they like create rare, they create like artificial scarcity when it comes to diamonds because they understand if you don't flood the marketplace with something, you can charge higher prices. Mm-hmm. And this is what money is. Money is a store of your economic power that you're kind of using as a talisman. You're just like, I'm going to work now and um, I'm going to put it, let's say in this, I'm going to save it because much like an astrological talisman, you're going to save that star energy. You're going to save energy into something because later on when you need it, to buy some salt, to pay your rent. I'm going to use this as a symbol of the stored economic energy. It's a battery. It's a battery. Mm -hmm. And therefore, what is the most valuable battery? Like a battery that's just like put into something like energy put into a battery that is in a form that is durable. Like that's the reason why gold was so popular. Gold, it don't lose its luster, right? It's, it's going to survive forever. Some of the gold that we use today, it's been melted from gold that was used in Roman times. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't corrode. It doesn't rust. It's portable. You can make it into coins. It's not super portable, but it's portable enough. You know, it's definitely better than like lugging around huge ass rocks or something. Yeah. So there's lots of properties about gold that made it a great battery, a great store of power of your energy, your economic energy. That's why it was money. Uh, but the thing is, is that one of the things that people don't realize about Bitcoin and about cryptocurrency is that, well, if money can be anything, as long as it fulfills these sorts of qualities, then what's the big deal about Bitcoin? More than gold, it is durable because it's not, you don't have to like worry about it, I don't know, like melting because it's like a super hot day. 
you don't have to worry about it getting like, you know, holding like 20 gold coins in your pocket. You just need like, I'm going to show you my cold wallet. This is where I store my ETH, right? This, this is literally like, what if I'm a refugee? What if like this is back in like Iran, you know, like back in the 70s or 80s when the Shah was being deposed? So many of these Iranian refugees who came to America, their assets were frozen by the Iranian government because they're like, you're, if you're going to leave this country, fuck you. You're not taking anything with you. They arrived in the country destitute. I mean, and this is lots of refugees, refugees from Vietnam and stuff, whatever. The government gets to decide what to do with your money. The government is in charge of it. You try to leave America, like for, I don't know, like France, and you're like, fuck you, America. I don't want to deal with it. You think that you can move all your assets, all your bank account money, if you have like, let's say a pretty substantial amount, you think you can move it easily outside the country. The American government is going to step in and decide what they're going to do with your money. So it's like, oh, that kind of sucks. It's my money. It was my economic power being stored in a fucking battery that I did. I put in that economic power. It was me charging the battery. But you, the centralized authority, you get to decide what to do with it. And I was like, wait a second. That sounds like a scam. And then (laughs) it's just like, then you have something like cryptocurrency where it's not controlled by a central authority. It's not controlled by the government. Imagine if somebody fleeing Vietnam after the Vietnam War, all the allies that we had that America had from the Vietnam War, they had to leave like in two days or something like that, or else they would have been literally tortured alive, right? And like killed. What are they going to do? If there had been cryptocurrency back then and they had put their, their assets into crypto, all they needed to do was memorize the seed phrase. They didn't even need this memorize a seed phrase okay you can do that 12 phrases 22 like words no problem and then you can go to america you can get on a computer that runs let's say the ethereum like so whatever it is you can go on any sort of computer and you could have taken out the economic store of your labor of your effort of your intellectual property things that belong to you and you could have been able to extract it you didn't have to worry about the vietnamese centralized government deciding that you can or can't You don't have to worry about the American centralized government deciding, oh, you can or can't bring stuff from Vietnam or Iran into there. So in that sense, I was just like, this is one of the most democratic, one of the most freeing things that I've heard of. It's revolutionary because I was just like, I don't trust a bunch of old white dudes to like decide what to do with my money and what to do with my rights and my economic stores of energy, my intellectual property, all of that, that I exchange for the symbol of money. Who the fuck? is a bunch of people who don't even know how to run a fucking bank. I can guarantee you, you could have put, put a bunch of like so-called like, oh, they're just a kindergarten teacher. No, you could have taken a thousand kindergarten teachers. They could have run the central banks better. I'm positive of it, Me too. you know, right? Yeah. Right. And so because of that, I'm just like, I'm not, not going to give power to a bunch of like basically um, morons. I'm not going to give it to a bunch of incompetent morons. Mm-hmm. I'm just not who just happened to get into their positions of power due to nepotism, due to centralized power. Based yeah. upon that, and also this idea of like, why is it that Twitter, Facebook, Google, why are they the ones who get to decide all of this? I don't agree with what Trump says, but at the same time, I don't want people deciding what I can and can't see, simply because if they can do that, then they can shut me down. If like, I don't know, the conservatives get into power, then they get to do the same thing to me. And then it's just like history repeating itself. And I was just like- Or if dogmatic materialists get into more um, power and they decide yeah. that discussions of witchcraft are no longer appropriate. I mean, this is why we, we should stand up for free speech no matter what. Yes, 
Yes. No matter what. And the free exchange of ideas because ideas can't hurt you. Words on a page can't hurt you. I really, you know, as a former English teacher, that was, um, they're powerful. They stimulate your imagination. They stimulate your questioning. It's important to respect words and ideas, but at the same time, you can't be afraid to be exposed to things that you disagree with. Yes. Oh my God. This You can't grow. You can't grow. And not only that, you are then showing, talking about the natural world, you know, whenever you are put into a natural situation, you can see nature naturally Mm -hmm. rewards those plants that thrive that are anti-fragile. If you're a fragile animal, if you're a fragile plant, then it's just very natural that you're going to either evolve into something stronger or you're going to die out. And that's how you have a thriving ecosystem. How come that we say that we love nature? We love natural things. Nature is ugly. Nature is full of rotting things. Nature is in a lot of ways as cold and heartless as any computer code. And yet we say that we love nature. We don't love nature. You know, Sabrina Scott and I, when we spoke, we talked about this. We don't love nature. We love the romanticized, curated, centralized ideas of nature. Mm -hmm. True nature, true nature is decentralized, true nature is anti-fragile and anti-fragile things, they deal with bombardments of new information, new energy of things that go against it. In nature, the gazelles, they're constantly on the lookout for lions. That's just the way nature is. We don't like that. We don't like it when we see like baby seals being eaten alive uh, by predators, but that is how it goes. And if human beings interfere with the ecosystem, guess what happens? Then everything goes topsy-turvy. Then we face, you know, like an existential crisis, which we are because human beings decided to put our foot into nature and like decide to try to become like God. And nature is just like, "Mm, we are showing you that decentralization works better because it's millions of organisms intelligently working and responding to a system versus you, a centralized authority, you, human, centralized, deciding for everyone else, like what nature should look like fuck you. Now we're all going to die. So I was just like, oh my God, even nature is showing us that decentralization is the way to go. So anybody who I feel says they love nature, I'm just like, really think about it. Do you really love nature? Because if you love nature, you love decentralization and you love anti-fragility. And if you don't live your life in those ways, you don't love nature. So beautifully said. I was just in Sedona, Arizona, and I went on a hike And it was like around sunset and it was really beautiful, you know, the red rocks. But then I got lost on my way back from the hike (laughs) and the sun was setting and those red rocks weren't so pretty. So I really like what you just said about like we look because that romantic view of Sedona went away Mm. when I thought I was going to have to like find a cave to hide in all night, you know. So beautiful, you know, and I, I, I heard in that like something that I always feel a lot of is that like we're being treated like modern technocratic subjects anyway are being treated like zoo animals and we feel more and more that like anxiety and that that crisis and that restlessness and that feeling of being trapped we have everything we need but something's wrong you know that's kind of like the condition of this time at least for people who live in technocratic countries and um it it is a result of that very view that you were describing that like, yeah, let's just step in and like overly curate everything, overly enhance 
and sort of like make everything hyperbolic and unnatural in order to appease our sort of our artistic or aesthetic vision of what is our our anti anti fragility we want to give and this comes from i think a very noble um, impulse which is we want to protect everyone and everything yeah but here's the thing about nature which is something that we need to learn to accept nature does not because nature is about creating thriving anti-fragile systems and therefore things that have to die off have to die off the mm-hmm. banks should have died off if if the government if the central authorities had not stepped in in 2008 the banks would have died off there was no other way the economy would have just completely collapsed but if the government if the centralized authority had just let things be things would have built up again but it didn't happen this is what has happened in japan japan has had 20 years 30 years of basically what they call a zombie economy because the government refused to let the Japanese economy just bottom out Mm. and rebuild itself again. They were just like, no, 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 cushion, safety net, pillows, no crashing, no crashing. And it's like, how do you plan on competing with an economy that has basically scrappily built itself up like China, you know, and all these other economies in the world that are at least right now that are pretty, well, I can't say they're anti-fragile, but they're not as fragile as a Japanese, you can't. Mm -hmm. That's the way of nature. And this is what my magic today, based upon the philosophies of the Austrian School of Economics, of um, Satoshi Nakamoto, of crypto is about. It's about building Mm anti-fragility into magic. Basically, not only are you going to withstand, you know, all the uncertainty and chaos and natural parts of life, Mm -hmm. but Will you be able to become stronger because of it? That's what anti-fragile is. It's like, come at me. Because the more that 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 system of magic is tested, the stronger it gets because every single failure is sort of like a brilliant blueprint of this is how you get more stronger because I didn't die, but man, that was close, right? So now here's what I can do. Mm -hmm. And so you're building it up bit by bit and bit from that. And if we don't design systems of anti-fragility in our life, well, sooner or later, we're going to have to like come and crawl to daddy government or mommy banking system and be like, no, protect me. Mm -hmm. And once that happens, it's no longer natural. And then once that happens, you're putting just maybe like, what, a hundred brains to work versus the millions, billions of brains in the world. We always say two brains are better than one. What do you think is better? Two billion, three billion, or like a hundred that have just been educated in a certain bubble. It's so logical to me. And the fact that most people, I think that they're so anti-chaos and they're so into the curation because it's safe. And I'm like, if you're into magic, why are you even concerned about what is safe and what isn't safe? Magic is inherently dangerous. You do magic correctly, you can fuck up your life. You think that magic is all like love and light and like super like la-di-da? No, you do magic and you think that magic works Magic has to be done with a lot of skill and a lot of, I think, um, I don't want to say conservative like measures, but you need to be sure that you realize that things can go very, very wrong. So you need to be able to accept that. That's the reason why magic works, because it can literally cut you or it can heal you. And the fact mm-hmm. that people are treating magic almost as like this like fairy godmother that will come in and save you. And it's like, no, I've seen more examples of magic draining the energy out of people, making people delusional, making people feel as though I do this ritual and I can sit on my ass and and something great will happen. 
So that's what I've seen magic do. And I'm just like, yeah, magic has drained rather than helped so many people. Mm-hmm. And then people are just like, magic doesn't work. No, it's not that magic didn't work. The way that you did magic, it worked exactly the way it was supposed to because it was literally doing what it is that you set it out to do, which is to give you fantasy of what is unnatural. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, that is not the magic that I want to do. And the type of magic that I'm starting to figure out, and I'm very new at this, and I know that I sound like, like kind of like I know what I'm talking about. It's more that I'm just really passionate about what I'm talking about, which is a great lesson. People who know what they're talking about oftentimes will not be the ones who are going to be like yelling it out to the world, right? And I say this already as somebody who's very passionate, that's the reason why I'm like yelling it out to the world. There's going to be a day where probably I won't talk about it as much. And that's probably going to be because like the passion has simmered down and the knowledge has taken over. Mm -hmm. And so I'm already telling you guys, like, because of that, that's why social media is overrun by passionate people, by people who may believe what they're talking about, but do they truly know what they're talking about? Who knows? So I'm already putting out that caveat that like, seriously, take everything that I say with a grain of salt and you should. And everything that I hear from social media, I always take with a grain of salt as I should. This is what decentralization is also about. It's where you hear many different viewpoints and then you can decide after that. But my goal right now is to be able to give out this information because it is a different side of what's being told right now. And the information that's being told right now is the antithesis of the decentralization, freedom, and also the natural, natural feels of what I believe that effective magic should be. Rachel, you said in your class that in astrology, we go with the wave. We go, you know, the wind blows a certain way and you make sure that your sailboat the sails are open that day because you want to go where the wind is going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You could go that way when the wind is blowing the opposite way or there's no wind, but it's fucking hard. So why do that? Why not try to utilize and leverage the wind to aid in your ways, but you still need to get your sailboat out into the water. You can't just be on the beach being like, man, today's a perfect day to go towards that island. It's like, (laughs) you actually need to be on that fucking boat. And so I'm just like, that is what I think the type of magic that I'm doing is trying to study. It's trying to see where the cycles are. Mm -hmm. Therefore, using things like astrology in financial markets, using astrology in political sort of, I don't want to say divination, but sort of like seeing where the energy is going, you can then start making decisions in your everyday life to say, okay, maybe the market is going to crash soon and I need to start selling off coins, whatever. Or maybe it's going to start becoming unstable politically in this area of the world. Um, If I'm in this area in the world, do I want to consider moving? Mm -hmm. It's things like that, that I think the occult, which by the way, I'm sure everybody's heard the the phrase that, you know, millionaires don't use like the occult, but billionaires do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just one extra data point that people are using. And this is what I think, if it's good enough for them, then it's good enough for the average person, is it not? And the fact that the average person isn't using it, it shows me that, again, the centralized hoarding of that information, it's it's disgusting and it's happening. And it's like, no, no, none of that, none of that. Let's decentralize also Mm -hmm. and disseminate and distribute because that's what blockchain is. It's decentralized and distributed. Let's distribute this information. And where's the best place to distribute it? It's online. So that's one of the reasons why I'm starting to talk more and more about it. Again, I've been in this space literally, like I've been talking about it a little bit, but like literally in the crypto space for about a month. So in a month, I've like become like truly immersed in it 
in a year, who knows, I may look back and be like, okay, there were a lot of new, there were a lot of nuances that I didn't account for, but I think I want us to all start thinking about what are natural systems like? Because blockchain, despite its name, is very natural. It's distributed, it's decentralized, and in a lot of ways, it is anti-fragile. Mm-hmm. So how can we incorporate that into magic and all systems that are natural, whether it's blockchain, whether it's this or that, if your magic is also natural, they mesh well together. And for me, it was just like, oh, this is a magical system because it fulfills these qualities. My magical system, I'm trying to make it as natural as possible because natural has these qualities. Boom. That's a, It's as simple as that. Yeah, that is very true. And I'm, I'm really fascinated with the fact that you keep using the term anti-fragile because uh, years ago, and I actually, I think you've got a much deeper perspective than I ever did. I really enjoyed listening to you. But when Aranis entered Taurus, I wrote a class called Anti-Fragile and a lot of it was about cryptocurrency and how that was going to be like the most representative of what this Aranis and Taurus transit, which lasts for like seven years, was going to really like explode into bring towards you know bring everybody towards this level of thinking and you are like on that iranian current so deeply and i'm really excited that you're speaking about this because i think that you have a particular gift for synthesizing very sophisticated levels of critical thinking on topics that are very esoteric both the occult and cryptocurrency are very esoteric to a lot of people, but you have a gift for translating it and making it feel like very accessible. Like I feel like really uplifted and up-leveled in my understanding of all of this, (laughs) even though I myself have meditated on it, I feel like you've gone much deeper. So thank you for sharing so much of what you've been meditating on and what you've been studying. It's really, it's really dope what you're doing. Uh, and I'm really, really proud of you for, <laughs> you. for diving. Rachel, your, well, yeah. Rachel, your class, like, you know, like one of the things that it taught me was to kind of be open to the natural currents of nature. Yeah. And before I was never into that because I was taught. And I think most of us have been taught that we need to, as successful people be in control of the currents we need to be in control by knowing all this information and then analyzing it and imposing our will onto the system, right? This is very like, you know, like modern literature, like, you know, oh, there's a, you know, nature is trying to kill us, but we're going to fight against it, whatever, you know, it's like, oh, I have no match. It's fucking winter time, you know, my glove fell off and what, you know, we know what we're talking about. But the thing is, is that one of the things that your class really taught me was to be open And just like, sort of like let the natural waves like get into you. And I think that's one of the reasons why just without even trying, like these waves that you're talking about, these, the the Uranus and Taurus and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. like without even like particularly like, like knowing about it per se, or particularly like looking at it every single day, Mm -hmm. I was able to maybe feel it in the air because I was just like, I'm just going to be open to it. Mm -hmm. When you're open to these things, I think these astrological um, transits, you just kind of live in it without even like trying to purposely think about it. Like it just, you just feel the zeitgeist and you're just like, wait a second. Like, I think this is what it's about. Yeah. And because you can naturally do it, then you have, I think more graceful timing because you're not forcing it. You're not like letting your mind, your monkey mind decide like, Oh my God, you know, is it going to be this or this? Instead mm-hmm. you're just like, I have a feeling. I saw this and I have a feeling and I trust my feeling because I trust nature. I trust decentralization. I trust distributed systems. I trust mm-hmm. all of that. 
I see myself as distributed and decentralized as well. Mm-hmm. I'm aligned. I'm aligned with the wave and therefore I become the wave, you know, almost like that. And so it's like once you become like that and then you can just ride the wave naturally and then you see things like your class and you're just like, of course, I was feeling it. But I was also making decisions based upon these waves. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the most important things that many people today who are very in the material mind are missing. They're trying to impose their centralized will upon decentralized natural things. And therefore they miss out on the waves. So this is one of the reasons why, like, I think if somebody like took your course, you know, or like went into one of your like talks, the Uranus and Taurus, then they could like start to like build up some sort of intellectual logic for them to be like, okay, maybe I can relax. Mm-hmm. And then they can let the zeitgeist really like get into them and then be like, okay, I'm going to ride the wave. And then, you know, I took your class, like I took discovery like three years ago or something like that. Trust me before <laughs> three years ago, I was like the average person trying to impose my will, my fear, my centralized, whatever into decentralized nature. But then after your class, like over three years of practice and over three years of seeing how riding the wave has benefited me instead, you know, you need firsthand skin in the game to trust decentralization and distribution. Mm-hmm. After three years, now I can just sort of like relax and be like, yeah, I can trust myself, but only because I had three years of experience and I had knowledge given to me beforehand as well. This is the reason why I think it's just not enough to like think about it and talk about it. You need to actually learn. You need to go to teachers. You need to actually sit down and study it. You need to put your skin in the game. That's why, even though I've been in the crypto space for one month, I like put some of my money, not a lot, but put my money into the crypto space to start practicing and making, I would say, slightly more risky things that I wouldn't do if I had thousands of dollars in it, right? I put in like something like, I made $300 from my NFTs. I did NFTs. I was like, oh, people are talking about NFTs. Let me do it not talk about it, not debate about something I've never done before, because that's dumb, you know, but let me actually make an NFT, try to sell it, see what that's like. Oh, now I have like actual ETH. Let me try to do something with it. And then I put in a little bit of fiat and fiat is a fancy word for government backed currency, all, all currency, US dollar, Japanese yen, Korean one, Russian rubble. Those are all fiat. And then put, put like maybe like $300 of fiat into the market and see what happens, right? And it's altcoin season. It's like altcoins are going crazy and stuff. But already, because I've taken enough occult classes, I took your class, um, I've been into some of your talks and stuff, um, and I've done the occult for like three years, four years, I can already feel the bubble bubble. And as Andre mentioned, the cyst about to burst. The cyst is also about to burst when it comes to like this, this bull market. So I'm just like, I can trust myself when it comes to that. Mm-hmm. And so now like I can start, I know the next five steps I'm going to make, but that's only because for the past three years, I've been studying the occult. I've been studying astrology. I've been doing all that. If I didn't have that, I wouldn't be able to do these steps more confidently. I would have sort of dithered. Oh, should I, shouldn't I put the foot in, put the foot out. And that I think is what really kills you because mm-hmm. that's where you're no longer anti-fragile. You're extremely fragile because you're in and out, in and out, in and out. And so I really encourage people, I know this is a very like large, like abstract topic, but one of the ways to really bring it down to earth is take an astrology course, literally take a tarot course, Yeah. read a book about the occult, read a history book about how a country like South Korea, where back in 1950, whatever, the US um, diplomats were saying, Korea will never, ever, ever, ever recover from this. 
Korea had the, the GDP of the country of Sudan at that point. How did in two generations, a country like that, that no one believed in, become the 11th largest economy in the world, the leader culturally for young people, um, people speaking Korean when Korea has absolutely no economic advantage whatsoever? How did Korea gain that soft power in two generations? Two in my lifetime, from the time I was born to now, I could see night and day. How did that happen? Mm -hmm. These are occult practices people are doing without calling it a cult. So this is what you study. And once you study that, all of a sudden things start to fall into place and make more sense. This is how you bring it all down into practical ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like it's a place to put your passion. It's a place to put your hatred. It's a place to put your love. These, you know, emotion is uh, movement. It's momentum. It literally is motion, right? Emotion. And I love the, what, your description of, you know, Korea, Korean people as being the passionate, emotional, hateful, and also like inspired ones, you know, um, in the area. And I certainly, I loved how you related that to the Irish or the Italians. That made a lot of sense to me. That really brought it down because I'm Italian. And, um, we definitely have that reputation. But the other thing that comes with that is like the artistic ability and is a lot of witchcraft for sure. A lot of witchcraft. And I, I loved that you described Korean people in that manner. And it makes a lot of sense that with all of that feeling, with all of those emotions, with all that passion, all the hatred and all the love, that's what's built the momentum. That's the energy they're drawing from to have made those leaps and bounds of economic improvement, cultural explosion, unimaginable levels of healing, I am sure. I'm not saying that all the trauma is healed because that's not possible in such a short period of time. Um, from like the early 20th century when Japan invaded on, it's been hell. So, you know, that takes time. But nevertheless, like, all that trauma is also part of why they have taken off like they have. You know, it is it is magical and it is mysterious. It's fuel. It's fuel. It's That's it. You know, That's what I'm trying like to say. It's, it's like it's a, fuel. It's that idea that like you you create you can lose a lot by burning out by burning out mm -hmm. or burning by by like burning firewood. You lose you mm -hmm. lose the wood, mm -hmm. but you actually create energy. It is alchemy. Yeah. Yeah. Alchemy. It, it exactly. is alchemy. Exactly. And like, you know, I also teach alchemy. I'm teaching my class right now, spiritualized. Um, we actually are teaching it. Andre and I are co-teaching spiritualized. Nice. It's so powerful. Yeah. It's really nice. <laughs> and it's actually, it's great to have like the two teachers because it balances everything. But one of the things I teach in that class again is like, you know, alchemy is very natural. Like you're going to feel like you're recognizing something that you've always had. You're going to feel like you're remembering something that you've always done. It's not uh, the same thing as learning a technique that's totally outside of you and foreign to you. It's merely learning a deeper language and communing with this quality inside of yourself more and applying it to like a method that you then begin to innovate and make work for yourself on a personal level. But alchemy is natural and we do know how to do it. It doesn't matter where you're from. If you are human, you know how to do alchemy. And my favorite example of alchemy that's just so simple is like somebody who's capable of um, making people laugh is a great alchemist. It's that simple. If you can turn pain into humor and it always is that way, nobody is funny no one makes other people laugh unless they have suffered deeply. It is always that way. 
It's suffering that creates humor. It's pain that creates comedy. And it's a brilliant act of humanity to be able to turn suffering into good humor. Um, and that's actually why I chose Andre. That's why I married him. He makes <laughs> <it fun. laughs> um, but it comes from suffering. So like, that's just a microcosm of like the macrocosm that you're describing and good for the country of Korea that they're actually transmuting all that pain. I'm happy to hear that it's going so well. And it's not just Korea that can do that. Like we can all do that on a personal level and we can all watch other countries that have suffered and been tormented and tortured. We can watch them do a similar thing. So that's the beauty of the occult. That's the beauty of alchemy. And it is nature. It is nature. It is it's like us. So it's natural. Struggle. Yeah. It, one of the things that you said, it's like really just chills, which is about like, you can't make people laugh unless you've suffered, like really suffered. And I think what you're touching upon is this concept of we've all seen the TikToks. We've all seen the people where they try to be funny and they're cringe. Right. And you're just like, <laughs> why is that? It's because they're trying to bypass in a way, spiritually bypass the true human condition, the, hu the true human condition is something far more deep and authentic than just the surface level. Ha ha ha. I'm going to try to say something funny to make you laugh. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what a lot of people mistake mm, the human experience for this, like trying to be safe, trying to be on the surface level, whatever it is, you know, I'm not exactly sure how we came to that point, but it's those people who decide to go deep. Mm -hmm. Those people who decide I'm not going to spiritually bypass, I'm not going to make things all just like lovely and la-di-da, I'm going to look at the rotting corpse on the hiking trail. I'm going to say that when I'm swimming in the ocean, if the shark catches me, bad for me, but the shark had to eat, things like that. And also that things, just like the seasons, come in spring, summer, autumn, and winter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did all the seasons. Sometimes mm -hmm. I'm just like, did I do that? So the thing is, is that this is one of the great ways to learn about natural things is to learn about it, you know, because I don't know about you, but I don't want to leave my air conditioned room to go out and suffer through the, the chills of winter. And like, I, I'm much more um, open to learning about it as in like Capricorn season, right? I'm just like, yeah, I, I think I, I'm okay learning about it like that. I don't think I literally have to go through frostbite. Mm -hmm. So that's the luxury of learning about the occult. And for somebody like me, and I think a lot of creative people are like this. The astrology, the, the zodiac signs especially, and also the houses and stuff, the planets, all of that, they are symbols to me about what natural rhythms are like. And this is something that you talk so beautifully, Rachel. And this is the reason why that same mentality of like, oh my God, wait a second. Capricorn is a symbolism of the amount of light that comes in during wintertime. Holy shit. I thought it was just like some sort of like, you know, like something very like object oriented. You know, I just listened to a podcast, which I recommend everybody listens to. It's Robert Breedlove, who I call like Gaston because he looks like Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, literally. Um, but he's like this big Bitcoin maximalist. And sometimes he can be a total tool because like you can just tell he's just like shilling like Bitcoin, but it's like whatever, you know, like he's passionate about it. So, Okay. He's interviewing in this epic, like 11 part, like nine hour interview with like Michael Saylor, who's like a newly, like he used to be so against Bitcoin. And now he's like turned into a Bitcoin maximalist himself. Yeah. And Michael Saylor is like going from the history of like fucking cavemen all the way to Bitcoin in this like huge nine hour thing. 
So I've like listened to like up to five, right? Because I was just like, this is so intense. I have learned more about, I was just like, Michael Saylor is a fucking occultist. He's a mage. The way he talks about money, I was like, how is this even possible? He was talking about how property is not the actual property itself. Like when we're talking about this, if I say this is my property, this belongs to me. Mm-hmm. It's not this, that's the property. It's the relationship I have to this. That is the property. It's mm-hmm. this invisible, subtle energy that is actually what we would call property. Because before we have that relationship, this is not property. This is just merely an object. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, right? So the way that ancient, basically language, you know, cause so much of the occult is based on language. Ancient languages, when they talk about things like cups, and water going into a cup, they wouldn't just say, oh, the, the water's in the cup. They would say something about the relationship that the water has with the cup, you know? Mm-hmm. I forget exactly like how it was phrased. But when we start thinking of it that way, and as money being energy, like literally my idea of like money being a store of economic power, yes, like I definitely got it from like people before Michael Saylor. But then when Michael Saylor, he was talking about how like money is actually the most cleanest and purest human form of energy, not like being like spirits in the world, but like human. It's the cleanest and purest form of human energy. I had to like really sit down and think about it. And I was like, why would he say that? Why would he say something as provocative as that? Mm-hmm. And I realized it's because there is probably very few other symbolic measures of basically like, okay, if we decide to create a beautiful piece of art and we want to show it to the world and derive value from it, because we want to pay our bills, we want to pay rent, things like that. What are we going to use to transact with? We're going to use currency. And we decided currency is going to be used because this way we don't have to barter. It's not like my painting goes for like five of your cattle. That's a very like non-efficient way to transact value. Mm-hmm. Money was created literally human beings, according to Michael Saylor. And I was just like, oh my God, Michael Saylor, you're like a fucking genius. So like everybody knows he's a genius, but still I was like, why is this guy such a fucking genius? Because he was basically saying that nature is disordered. Nature is chaotic. Nature is like in so many ways, just like, like all over the place. And we want nature to be like that. That's how nature like becomes nature. Mm-hmm. Humans come in and humans are just like, how can we work with this system of nature? But then in also put a layer of the humanness, the desire, as the Greeks had, of putting order, symmetry, things like that on top of this chaos. The Greeks, they used astrology. And now human beings, modern human beings, have also developed another system. It's not an either or, it's an and. Another system called money to decide, okay, this chaotic system of like, what is value? What is this? You know, how do I pay my bills and stuff? Let's create this system called money, okay? And this money is going to be transportable. It's going to be um, fungible, which means that $1, you go to a cashier and say, can I trade this $1 for another dollar in your cashier? No problem, right? They're kind of like equal to each other. It's durable. It has something that everybody has decided has some value in it, right? So human beings decided to create this to help transact value so that I can put my transaction of, of basically value of like, okay, this is what I'm going to put out to the world. Therefore, I can help survive and my family survive. And okay, here's this art painting, good. And then you're giving me these symbolisms, money, currency of like what that means in the marketplace. And I'm going to use that money and I'm going to store it in a bank account or use it. And I'm going to do that 
so that I can decide to like, whatever, like transact with other people and buy their painting, buy their corn, buy their cow, whatever it is. Human beings created the system and human beings created the system in order to facilitate the relationship that we have with each other. Every single human relationship, there is some value transaction going on. There mm-hmm. is some sort of value transaction. And then we decide to create money to become like this pure, like very like, I would say like extremely like next level way of transacting value. And I was like, holy shit, Michael Saylor, what the fuck, right? And so like when he said that, I really thought about it and I was like, that is so true. Just like the Greeks, they put in systems like, you know, like astrology to, to try to create order out of nature and therefore create what I believe on one hand, yes, like we butt into nature and we like fuck it up. But on the other hand, human beings are fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. To create that level on top, humans have also created this thing called money, this pure, beautiful system of trying to bring order into chaos on top of that. It's beautiful. And the fact that so many human beings denigrate money and talk shit about money and don't understand money and are afraid of money. Why is that? It's the narrative that we've built. And I was like, once I heard that, my mind, it totally changed. And it's almost like Michael Saylor opened a door and the light just came through. And I was like, okay, I've left the cave. I have left the cave. It's like, it's like you said, like, it's not, it's property isn't the object in and of itself. It's the relationship that you have with that object. And it's like money has become this symbol of Mm. crass materialism. Yeah. You know, and it's like, it's, 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 it's like, it's like shooting the messenger or something, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's like, it's like, the problem is actually like when you care more about stuff, you know, stuff than people, when you care more about, you know, like your holdings than your, you know, your family members and stuff. Mm -hmm. When it's, when you're, when, when, when your relationships are built around greed and fear Mm -hmm. rather than like love and sharing or, or like trust and, you know, um, Mm -hmm. you know, trust and, and compassion. Um, that's the problem. And there, and it's like this idea of like trying to like root, uh, you know, money is the root of all evil of like trying to root out, like, what is the cause of that? And, and like I said, it's like shooting the messenger or something where it's, it's really not money in and of itself. That is the cause of that. But you know your relationship to it that's the the relationship to it yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. kind of like um just i'm thinking of the greeks and architecture and how great architecture is a similar kind of invention it's something that creates a beautifully symmetrical refined experience of shelter rather than like running under a tree or crawling into a cave which sure those things have their value, but like we are human. And so we are here to create order out of this chaos as well. That's a part of, that is our nature. So some element of nature is asking us to be these vessels of refinement, you know, refining energy, refining ideas, refining things. I really think that's what human beings are. We're here to refine nature. Um, so creating like a beautiful home or a beautiful palace or a beautiful temple or a beautiful theater or something like that is a wonderful contribution. But like when you just start slapping up really ugly buildings that are just like crowding everything out and choking out the, the atmosphere and are providing no 
genuine service to humanity, you know, and I think we all kind of feel that about a lot of the world that's being built right now. It's just careless and greedy and full of fear and um, toxic and dangerous and cheaply built and all of these terrible things. That's kind of the state that like that money can be in um, because of the the emotional place that it's coming from, you know, green. If you're, if you're somebody who has a very uh, fraught relationship with money, and I would say 99.9% of people do because of the way that we were brought up, mm-hmm. it's not the money itself. It's you have to examine the relationship that you have to this thing that we call money, to the object. The object itself is of neutral value. Yeah. And once you've examined that, then you'll notice that that relationship you have with money is echoed in the relationship you have with lots of things. The relationship that I had with money is very similar to the relationship that I had with a lot of romantic relationships and a lot of human relationships just in general. And um, a lot of it was based upon fear and control and also this belief in scarcity. Um, so that made me make certain decisions. So when people say things like money is just so like crass and mundane, and I'm just like, money is occult as it gets. It's magical as it gets. And it's also as alchemical as it gets, because in a lot of ways, it is such a human thing, right? Like animals do not transact value, like with currency and money, like things the way that human beings do. Mm -hmm. Um, So because of that, like being able to take like something that is like so many human layers above, and therefore in a way like hidden and abstracted and super esoteric. And if you can heal that relationship, I think in a lot of ways, you're also starting to heal the foundational relationship that you have with nature, with things that are like foundational to everything that the human experience is built on. So in some ways, I would say that because money has like great feedback, the feedback loop of magic for me is like huge. For me, the best magic is kind of like um, you do something and then almost like a computer after you write code and then it spits out like code back to you there's a feedback loop. And if you don't have the feedback loop, how do you know that what you wanted or what your goal was or what you sort of hope to experience even happened, right? Mm -hmm. So the feedback loop of magic can sometimes be very subtle. It can sometimes be hard to see. It can go on for years and years and years, but money tends to be pretty fucking obvious. It tends to be um, kind of in your face. And I feel as though if you can, in a way that you'll know it too, in a way that's constructive, if you can constructively heal that relationship that you have with this thing called money or currency, fiat, whatever it is, if you can do that, it is a very clear cut feedback loop that I think shows you that you're starting to alchemize, not just that, but other areas of your life. It would be very, 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 very unusual for me to, to think of a situation where you've healed your relationship with money because it's a very clear feedback loop. You've healed it. And yet the rest of your life is like shit. If anything, I would say that all of a sudden, all these areas of your life will also start to heal. Again, nature is decentralized and distributed. So this node heals and then boom, this node lights up and heals because everything is like distributed. It's like all connected together. So money is just this humongous ass node. Like even in like any sort of blockchain, there's some nodes that are like teeny tiny because they only carry like lightweight parts of the, anybody who has like a crypto wallet. They're technically part of the system, but they don't have a full ledger of all the transactions. Those are the full nodes. Those are the mining nodes. So you don't have to be a humongous node to be part of the network, but there's varying sizes of it. If you heal like a humongous node that all these smaller nodes feed into, then you're naturally healing the smaller nodes as well. And I think money 
currency is a humongous node to heal if we want to think about it in a decentralized, distributed way. And that's one of the reasons why I think I'm focused on that right now, because I understand it's not the money. When you do money magic and when you're doing magic surrounding crypto and blockchain and money and all that stuff, da, 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 it's not the money. If you make money cool, if you lose money cool, it's not about the money. It's about the relationship you have with the money. That's the alchemy. That's the alchemy. And it's only because money is conveniently uh, clear in its feedback because you can't really argue with decimal points and numbers and spreadsheets. That's the only reason why. It's just convenient to do it. If, if something else was just as convenient and clear cut, we could use that too. And I'm sure that there's other you know, big nodes that we can use as well. We just happen to choose money. So instead of feeling like, wait, money isn't everything in the world. That's right. It's the relationship you have with the object that's everything. Because once you heal that relationship, you heal all the other nodes, all the other relationships in your life. So well said. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Man, that was was really insightful. Yeah, that was dope. That was dope. Very insightful. Epic. And I feel like I feel like you're doing something innovative. I'm not gonna say unique because unique means only one person's doing it, but what you are doing is most definitely innovative. And um the, well, the, I just, I love it when anybody can see outside the box um, hell yeah. in, in magic, it's, I mean, oh, magic, because yeah. magic, it's, it's really supposed to encourage you to see outside the box and yeah. people really just, they get tr- stuck in their traditions. They get yeah. stuck in their, in their feedback loops. Um, and they're not really, they're not really doing anything that inter they're doing like things that are useful, but not interesting not innovative you yeah, know you got it it's and not progressing right yeah they're, yeah yeah they're not progressing they're just kind of they're like on the merry-go-round they're not on the you know they're not on the 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 um on the the uh, what's it called the uh, the um the high speed rail you know and i really think you've like you've really like found that pathway of like the high speed rail yeah in in magic and the occult you you're know, definitely uh you're a leader not a follower yeah and also um more, you know you're a philosopher honestly that's what i would call you you're a philosopher about all the things that you are interested in you take that perspective and i really enjoyed talking to you about all of this so i really hope that you would like to um come on again sometime yeah, to talk about absolutely. what ever you know whatever you're into at the time we could continue this conversation take it in another direction or if you've found inspiration to delve deeply into another subject or another area i'm totally down for that too like whatever you're into i'm down to talk so yeah we would love to have you on again and yeah thank you so much thank for you being here. and uh before we go um would you like to say something about asian american history month yes thank you uh so May is AAPI month. And I know a lot of people are just going to be like, I did not even know that. (laughs) And so Asian American Pacific Islanders, even though we have very different histories, East Asian is not the same as South Asian is not the same as Southeast Asian is not the same as Pacific Islander. But, you know, like, uh, I guess this is a place to start. And so during this month, if you would like to, you know, perhaps uh, give extra boost to those of that background, uh, whether they're creators, um, whether it's TikToks that you see that you want to duet, uh, tweets that you want to retweet, people talking about their history. Like As you guys have noticed in this podcast, I talk a lot about Korea. I'm Korean American. I can only speak from that Korean American and East Asian side. Um, so if you see other people of AAPI background, and also, by the way, people who are native Hawaiians, you know, yes, you know, Hawaii was forcibly taken as like the 50th American state, 
but there's, and same with Alaska, there's native people, indigenous people in places in America as well. And even though they're not Pacific Islanders, um, in a way, I kind of consider them like to be honorary, like AAPI, you know, indigenous people. So AAPI month, uh, if you want to focus on that, that would be great. Please boost those of that background who are talking especially about how their AAPI experiences have shaped their lives. So yes, guys, May is AAPI month. And thank you, Andre, for uh, reminding me to talk about that. Yeah, well, that's what I have a notepad for. I have one question because I actually, I have to admit, I just learned about Asian American History Month. I honestly didn't know about it, which I'm a little bit ashamed of. Uh, I used to teach. We never heard about this. So uh, maybe a lot of people have like no idea about this at all. Um, But aside from listening to someone like you speak, do you have any recommendations? Do you follow any people that you would really, really like to share? Oh, yeah. So one of, I believe, the most brilliant feminists that I've come across online, she's a Korean American and she's on TikTok and her handle is something like her story. If people go on my TikTok, you'll see that of the few people that I follow, mm-hmm. she's one of them. Okay. Absolutely brilliant. Um, just, oh my God, like I massive girl crush on her. Um, I don't want people to just think that Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders are just like your lawyers, your dentists, you know, your CPAs. A lot of brilliant, absolutely brilliant uh, academics, also people, business people, so many people in the crypto space, they are from Asian American or Asian backgrounds, mm-hmm. um, especially women. Like if you see a lot of uh, crypto talks and it's like somebody from China, oftentimes they're a woman, like a Chinese woman. And I'm just like, wow, like amazing. Cool. So I, I just think that uh, if you go on my social medias, a lot of the people that I follow, they happen to be Asian American. One of my really good friends, her name is Jen and she's a shaman. She's a Korean, uh, she's an initiated Korean shaman. So like we're talking like she went through an entire initiation process. It's a closed practice, um, this type of Korean shamanism. Um, but she's Korean American. And like, we've like hung out, we've eaten barbecue together. Uh, I've talked about David. She, David, she comes from uh, a Northern Chinese, like North Asian background. He's also on the road to become an initiated shaman. In the Mongolian tradition, I think he's written a book called North Asian Magic. I think it might be the only book about North Asian magic. Wow. Um, he's written about that. He's given a class about it and stuff. Brilliant. Um, today actually is the or yesterday was the first day of a new Kickstarter by my friend. Um, so and um, she is kind of helping a Korean photographer who's photographed Korean shamans like like basically doing their thing. It's a new Kickstarter. I'm going to talk about it on my social media. Um, and it just started. So I'm really, really excited to, to really help promote that gorgeous photos again, Korea. Yes. BTS convenience store doors that open everything being like super high tech, but also Koreans are starting to reclaim their past, which had been sort of ignored because everybody was like, Oh, let's forget about the past. It's too traumatic. And so there's things like that. So Tons of projects going on. Tons of projects. Oh, thank you. So just you're the node, the big node that people who are not in the node 
can can start to get more in the know about what's going on with Asian Americans reclaiming their folk magic, reclaiming their history, and the amazing things that they're doing in the world now with technology, with modern philosophy, with economics, etc. So thank you so much once again for sharing all of that. It's been amazing, and I hope you have a beautiful day, John. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this interview. If you would like to learn more about Jawan Ku, all of her channels, including Witches and Wine, are linked in the show notes. In addition, in honor of May being Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, all the links to the authors and practitioners she mentioned in this episode can also be found in the show notes at aeolianheart.com. Last but not least, if you enjoyed this interview and would like to support my work, please join my Patreon. This invites you into a magically active community that is always collaborating with the heavens to inspire tremendous healing and growth. Thanks. Peace out.